0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back from lunch. I hope you guys had a good conversation upstairs. Uh, My name is Lydia Mashburn. I'm the Managing Director for our Center uh, for Monetary and Financial Alternatives here at the Cato Institute. And it is my distinct honor and privilege to introduce to you today a special speaker who will then be introducing our uh, luncheon speaker. Congressman Jeb Hensarling serves the 5th District of Texas, and he also has been the chairman of the Financial Services Committee for the last three Congresses. He has provided incredible thought leadership in the areas of financial regulatory reform and in monetary policy reform. His Choice Act is one of the goalposts now for what market-oriented reform looks like for the future. Um, that passed the House with uh, quite a, a, a nice majority. He's also continued to work on bipartisan packages of bills, working across the aisle to put together packages on banking regulation reform and securities regulation reform. Um, unfortunately, the 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 securities regs are still sitting in the Senate, but the banking reforms did go through earlier this year, so we laud him for his leadership he has provided in those areas. Um, Most significantly for our audience today, I think uh, one of the things he's done an amazing job with is with the Subcommittee on Monetary Policy. Uh, It used to be the redheaded stepchild of a subcommittee in the House, but he has empowered it to be an educational arm for members of Congress. They have uh, exercised a ton of oversight of the Fed throughout his tenure as chairman of the full committee uh, and also offered reform efforts. Um, We're very proud of the work that he has done. Um, I also, one little tidbit I find very amusing is he's, uh, he's, he's a great scholar himself. In fact, one anecdote is that one of his staffers heard from him over breakfast about a memo, in which uh, the question was, "Why is this IMF study not mentioned in footnote 20?" So I wish we had more statesmen like him. Um, I think he probably learned an awful lot from his professor at Texas A&M. Um, but without further ado, please join me in welcoming Congressman Jeb Henserling.
1: Well, just for the record, it was footnote 17. (laughs) I don't remember that. Um, Anyway, thank you for the kind introduction uh, to be called the special speaker. Uh, I have the honor of introducing the specialer speaker. I'm not sure that is a word in the English lexicon. Perhaps I just added it. Uh, I would say thank you for the invitation, except I think maybe I invited myself. I invited myself because I heard my dear friend and mentor, uh, Senator Phil Graham, would be speaking. And I asked for the honor to make a few remarks and introduce him. And Cato was kind enough to um, grant me that honor. Some of you have heard me speak at this very podium before. So forgive me if you are tired of hearing the story. But it does have the convenience of being truthful. Many things. Uh, still uh, resound um, strongly in my mind from my years as an undergraduate at Texas A&M University, one of which is I spent Sunday afternoons watching Bill Buckley's firing line on the local PBS station. I wish there would have been an alternative to watching it on a PBS Uh station, but they're the ones who offered it. But I also remember spending time on the weekends, because as an undergraduate having not two dollars to my name, I still invested $25 to be a sustaining member of Cato so I could get their quarterly journal. And believe it or not, I did actually read Cato's quarterly journal. So way back in the 70s, it was having an impact on this undergraduate's uh, life. And again, as I'm fond of saying, to show my commitment to the cause, that was honest-to-God beer money that I invested in Cato. Okay, if the truth be known, maybe once or twice, I did wander into the Dixie Chicken, the local watering hole, but not with as much robust currency. Anyway, I want to thank Cato for holding this uh, conference, and particularly, Jim, I think you just said it's been 37 years. Thank you for... Um, Keeping Monetary Policy Study Alive, and you were doing it before it was cool. And so tributes to you and tributes to Cato. I think 36, 37. Um, So again, just congratulations. Clearly over the last several months, much has been written and said about the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, Clearly, many have heralded the Fed's response to the crisis, and again, they did skillfully take a page out of the central banker playbook by providing emergency liquidity in a financial crisis, in a financial system that was in distress, which is, of course, what we expect them to do. But others, including myself, have also been critical of the Fed for having kept interest rates too low for too long and really exacerbating a set of circumstances that made the uh, intrusion of the Fed necessary on the back end. But in any event, there are very few, I believe, who have carefully taken uh, a very careful examination of how the Fed's extraordinary measures during the financial crisis have quietly morphed into their ordinary measures, both monetary and prudential regulatory measures, have they morphed into the ordinary measures of today. But the House Financial Services Committee, which I have the pleasure and honor of chairing for 42 days, 6 hours, 18 (laughs) minutes, and 15 seconds, has undertaken just such an examination. And we have concluded, to paraphrase the old automobile advertising slogan, This is not your father's Fed, and as a result of our concern, the committee recently passed under the outstanding leadership of Andy Barr of Kentucky, who um, managed to win re-election in a tough election cycle for Republicans, but we passed the Federal Reserve Reform Act of 2018, which I'll call the Fed Reform Act. I'll discuss that in greater detail in my remarks. But 10 years after the crisis, we ask a very simple question, and that is, is our central bank Uh, has it returned to doing what it can and only what it can do to further economic opportunities in American society? And to avoid sounding like a mystery novel, the resounding answer was no. Instead of reliably producing an efficient exchange medium, one that reliably delivers informative price signals so that households and businesses can make the most of their economic opportunities, Over many, many years, the Federal Reserve has instead been picking winners and losers. First, by what many of us believe to be paying unlawfully above market interest rates to banks. Second, blurring the lines between fiscal and monetary policy. Bless you. Not often you have a chairman of the House committee to bless you, but bless (laughs) you. distorting the price of risk in our economy and literally and figuratively placing uh, uh, their members into bank board seats that ultimately can politicize the allocation of credit within our economy. And I do worry that this record evidences something a little bit more than a dispassionate technocracy gone awry. Now, I am currently old enough to retire from Congress, but uh, also uh, young enough to remember the 1960s, a decade that saw America's economy grow, grow above a 4% pace. But under our previous administration, as we know, backed by the most uh, historic uh, and Herculean monetary stimulus in the history of the republic, America's economy, as you know, could only average 1.6%, almost two-thirds slower than the 1960 growth pace. Parenthetically, I believe that tells us much, much about the limits of monetary policy stimulus. Now, appearing small on its face, the difference between 4% GDP and less than 2% GDP turns out to be considerable, particularly if you are working class. People who earn $40,000 after a generation of 2% growth should have instead received an an astounding $25,000 raise had they been in a 4% economy. And interestingly enough, monetary policies during the 60s, as many in this room know, closely tracked the Taylor Rules guidance. And except for eight quarters during that decade, The Fed's policy rate stayed within 100 basis points of the Taylor Rules reference rate, making the decade by far the most rules-based policy for the 60 years for which data is currently available. By contrast, despite our nation's outsized monetary and fiscal response to the financial crisis, apologists of the time told us that 2% had become the new normal. As I think you know, left-leaning academics repurposed an old phrase, secular stagnation, to, pa- to paper over the missing bounce back from the recession. But we know that secular stagnation is actually shorthand for really bad public policy, specifically monetary mischief, extraordinary taxes, and oppressive regulation. So let me address some of that mischief now. Historically, as we know, the Fed's balance sheet has almost exclusively consisted of Treasury securities. But during the crisis, the Fed bought mortgage-backed securities, MBS, varying into fiscal policy, more specifically credit policy. I alluded to him earlier, but Stanford economics professor John Taylor rightfully called this action Mundustrial policy for the combination of monetary and industrial policy that it rightly represents. By choosing to intervene and select credit markets, the Fed harms its independence, erodes market discipline, and weakens long-term economic growth, again, by politicizing credit allocation. Already, some hope, some hope, if not expect, that the Fed will one day bail out student loans, municipality, and public pension funds. Ponder that one for a while. The risk now to an economy that is booming from a more rational taxation policy and reduced regulatory complexities is not Fed interest rates per se, but rather a decade of unconventional monetary policies becoming conventional. So what are we to do? Number one, policy transparency can help even as unconventional policies persist. And while our Federal Reserve's communications have recently improved, they still leave much to be desired. What is most desirable for long-term economic growth is for the Fed to set out an easily discernible and transparent policy strategy, and but for exigent circumstances to stick with it. The Fed has regularly characterized its conduct of monetary policy as being data dependent. Unfortunately, too often it remains unclear what data matters and how they matter. As one former Fed president has admitted, the FOMC gives lip service to policy predictability, but its statements remain vague. So our Fed Reform Act remedies this lack of transparency by instructing the Fed to annually publish a monetary policy strategy that includes a description, again, of what data are expected to inform monetary policy and how. The FOMC will remain independent in monetary policy. It can choose any policy it wants. It can deviate from it. It just needs to let the rest of of us know so that we can adequately plan for the value of our money. But making monetary policy great again also means getting the Federal Reserve out of the business again of favoring some creditors over others. We know that after the financial panic the Federal Reserve expanded its narrow authority over monetary policy to include credit policy. This cannot remain. This uncharted expansion resulted in a massive unaccountable central direction of credit, the likes which favor the politically favored over the prudence of many. And we know that centrally directed credit will never give us the economic results of the competitive marketplace. So our committee's uh, Independence from Credit Policy Act provides for an orderly return of the Fed's balance sheet to a treasury-only portfolio while maintaining the Federal Reserve's ability to act as our government's fiscal agency during financial emergencies. In other words, the Fed can continue its role as an originator of emergency loans but must swap out unconventional assets Uh, acquired through such lending facilities in return for uh, treasuries. So uh, in order to wrap up before I introduce the senator, I just wanted to conclude, and there's so much more I could discuss about the act, that the exigencies of 2008, that monetary policy number one can never, never be a substitute for fiscal policy. The nation needs a prudent path to a more normal Fed balance sheet size and composition where interest rates are once again market-based. Forays into credit allocation, fiscal policy, and bank management threaten the Fed's monetary policy independence, not to mention checks and balances. Although a strong and independent Fed remains critical, again, we cannot afford to one day wake up only to find that our central bankers have instead become our central planners. Thank you very much. And now for our specialer speaker. So besides spending time uh, watching Firing Line, reading Cato Journal, and occasionally walking into the Dixie Chicken, the local watering hole at Texas A&M University, Uh, It has been one of the greatest privileges in my life to sign up for a course in the spring of 1976 called Econ 311, Money and Banking, taught by Professor Phil Graham. And ever since I did that, my life has never been the same. And I was introduced to Hayek, and I was introduced to Friedman, and I was introduced to Schumpeter, and I was introduced to von Mises, And there was a passion for free market capitalism uh, that erupted within my heart and within my brain. And I credit this gentleman uh, literally to my left, who will always figuratively be on my right, because nobody can get to the right of Phil Graham, no matter how much I try. Uh, But he is, in my mind, uh, in the pantheon of conservative heroes. There is so much I admire about Phil Graham Uh, But one of the things I admire most today is that as I get ready to retire from service in the United States House of Representatives, I know how many other warriors have gone back, uh, I guess to turn their swords into plowshares and in the battle of ideas uh, to sit out the rest of their lifetimes. Uh, That is not Phil Graham. The battlefield has changed. Uh, but he is as, mo- uh, as much of a robust warrior for capitalism and freedom as he's ever been. And I don't know if he has pictures on Paul's You at the Wall Street Journal, but you can barely pick up a copy without seeing a new editorial pen by Phil Graham. And so I've never met a man of greater intellect, uh, tenacity, uh, courage, or patriotism in the best sense of the word and a man that I am privileged to call my mentor, call my friend, he's like a second father to me, United States Senator Phil Graham.
2: Well, you can see why I say, after having really been fortunate enough to live three lives, I was a college professor and I was a congressman and a senator, and I've been in finance now for 16 years, uh, that the best job I ever had was being a college professor. Now, I taught Jeb Hencerling everything he knew at the time. Not everything I knew at the time. But I can't take credit for everything he knows because he has learned a lot on his own. I don't know how you respond to an introduction like that other than saying that when Jeb ran for Congress, I'd made a decision previously that not get involved in primaries, But I decided in this case that this was the closest having a son run for public office as I was ever going to have. My children grew up in politics. Their mama worked for Ronald Reagan. I was in the Congress and the Senate. They knew too much about it to ever get into it. (laughs) But in any case, when I endorsed Jeb, they asked me why I was breaking the sort of Tradition I'd followed and I explained that not only was he the closest to a son that I would ever have that would run for public office, but that I would trust him not only with my life, but something a lot more important, the life of the nation. Uh, Jeb and I worked together for many, many years. I've seen him under many circumstances. His mama knows him better than I do. His wife knows him better than I do. But nobody else knows him better than I do. And he's the kind of person you would want your son to grow up to be. I wish he were my son. Uh, That's how much I think of him. So I'm very happy to be here today. And I can't miss the opportunity to say that the quality of work that is being put out by Cato now is the highest it has ever been. Uh, You put out a flyer on uh, John Early's work on poverty and income distribution that could have easily written in a different form been published in the American Economic Review. Fortunately, to show you how much God loves me, I was sitting in my chair reading the Wall Street Journal, and the Cato publication came, and Wendy said, this is a subject you've been talking about, and she handed it to me. So now John Early and I are working together, and uh, we've got the Department of Commerce and OMB changing the way we report economic data. Um, And, of course, my old and dear and loved professor, Dick Timberlake. I think Dick's 100 years old. I read the book you're about to publish. I didn't know what to expect. But I can say, in all honesty, that that book is the greatest contribution to understanding why the Great Depression happened since Friedman and Schwartz. Uh, It's extraordinary uh, that someone could write that work at his age, and quite frankly, extraordinary a think tank is publishing a piece like that. So I wanted to throw in that advertising while I was at it. Now... I've got a lot of stuff I want to cover, so I'm going to go fast. Uh, Jim has already told me he's going to publish this in, in the Cato Journal. And so uh, what I thought would be helpful would would be to bring all the stuff that I've been working on, Tom saving, uh, uh a professor at Texas A&M, and Mike Solon and I have been working on the last three or four years as it relates to this recovery and trying to sustain it and the headwinds we face. So let me go quick, let me talk about monetary headwinds. As we all know now, um, we had a financial crisis that was a product of 15 years of concerted federal effort to force banks, pressure banks, to make subprime loans, to force Freddie and Fannie to buy them, hold them, securitize them, to incentivize commercial banks to hold them as capital by giving equal credit to mortgage-backed securities as given to sovereign debt. And when the bubble broke, it destroyed the financial base Uh, of the world's financial system. And uh, in the process, it created great uncertainty as to who was broke. And so people stopped lending to each other. And the gears of the economy literally froze. Now, following traditional monetary policy, the Fed expanded liquidity. The Treasury undertook its program to try to stabilize the financial market. But the Fed did something that has gone largely undiscussed in policy circles and is virtually never mentioned in the media. It was discussed to some extent in the panel this morning, and that is the Fed started paying interest on reserves. Now, At the time that Congress gave them that power, I I don't think anybody, including the Fed, really understood the implications of it. But what happened is the Fed was able to dramatically expand the monetary base and do it in such a way that banks did not expand loans and the money supply did not change and they did it by converting reserves, excess reserves, into an interest-yielding financial asset, and as such, a liability of the Federal Reserve Bank. The magnitude of that effort, when you take into account all of the monetary expansion, is amazing. The Fed bought or offset by buying other securities 45% of all the federal debt issued during the Obama era. Now, let me set that in perspective. During World War II, the Fed bought roughly one-fourth the percentage of government bonds issued that it bought during the Obama administration. the federal government or the Treasury ended up buying 17% or holds today 717 percent of all federal debt outstanding. It holds 27% of all federally guaranteed mortgage-backed securities. When the financial crisis started, banks held on average 14 cents of reserves, for every dollar of demand deposits. Today, they hold $1.31 of reserves for every dollar of demand deposits. Now, that's virtually unbelievable. Uh, In the words of Irving Fisher, the great economist of the 19th and 20th century, we have 100% money. Today, we do not have a fractional reserve banking system. The banking system literally holds more reserves than it has demand deposits outstanding. We've had nothing similar to this uh, since the Civil War. Some of you will remember during the Civil War, the Congress passed the National Banking Act. I wasn't there, but (laughs) I I took Dick Timberlake's course, so of course I remember it vividly. Under the National Banking Act, Congress put a 10% tax on state bank notes, which drove them out of circulation. It issued national bank charters, but it required to issue national bank notes you had to hold dollar for dollar Government securities backing those notes. Now, the net result was to create a massive market for government bonds that allowed the government, the union, to borrow a massive amount of money without expanding the money supply and without adding to the inflationary pressure that was already there from the greenback period. Today's system... Is different, but it has a lot of similarity. Today, the Fed has bought the securities, and that has expanded deposits, high powered money in the banking system. And then the Fed has borrowed that money in essence by paying interest on reserves. So the Fed borrowed the money from the commercial banking system to buy government securities that it now holds. Now, this did very little to stimulate the economy during the Obama years, but one thing it did is it allowed the federal government to double the debt outstanding and yet pay less interest on servicing the debt than it paid when the debt was half that size. Now... Where has all this left us? Well, where it's left us is in the following situation. The Fed now is in a very different position than it has ever been in before. And that is monetary policy used to change when the Fed acted. Now monetary policy changes when the Fed does not act and market rates change. So the Fed is in the following situation. They've got these huge excess reserves that could more than double the money supply if the banks chose to make loans with a fractional reserve banking system. They're holding those reserves as a financial asset. And so if market rates go up, if the Fed does not raise the rate that it pays on reserves, then the money supply would expand and inflation would get out of control. So we now have a high, uh, what I would call a hair-trigger monetary policy. And the implications of it are pretty profound, in my opinion. Today, it is theoretically possible that if you were omniscient, that you could lower the rate you pay on reserves by just the right amount, sell securities in the open market by just the right amount, and wind down the Fed balance sheet without changing the money supply. Now, this is all very complicated because you don't really know how responsive banks are to interest rate changes, Velocity has fallen, that, that is, the money supply that the public holds relative to gross domestic product has fallen 29% with these virtually zero interest rates, and it's started to rise again. So if, if velocity is changing, you've got to build that into your equation. the um, But theoretically, that is possible, but it's not practical, and even – the great Alan Greenspan, in his prime, would have never undertaken such a task, in my opinion, in anything much beyond what the Fed has already done. So here's where we are. If the Fed followed interest rates, which now it has to do, this idea that the Fed could possibly Uh, hold interest rates down to stimulate the economy and keep the recovery going is now preposterous. Because if the Fed doesn't raise rates, inflation gets out of control and you derail the economy. So the Fed is an interest taker now, not an interest maker. If they were ever an interest maker, they're not one today. Now, they could simply... (coughs) work off this balance sheet by simply holding the assets they hold and letting the demand for money grow up to those assets. And they could do that in about 11 years. But that is 11 years during which their traditional monetary policy tools don't work. The reason was before you had these excess reserves, There was some degree to, to which you could play off inflation against interest rates. But now, with the fractional reserve banking system, if you let, if you tried to keep interest rates down, the money supply explodes, and therefore prices would explode. The most the Fed has ever sold off in a year is $300 billion worth of assets. If they could achieve that every year, it would take about five years to get out of the situation we're in now. Now, why why is that relevant? Why it's relevant is, it means that for the next five years, the Fed will do well to simply not make things worse. If the Fed can balance all of this Realizing it's got to anticipate banks' reaction to rising rates in this recovery. It's got to anticipate changes in velocity. Uh, If it can do that and not let either interest rates spike and kill the recovery or inflation explode and kill the recovery, it will have done a remarkable job. That's the monetary headwind we face. Now, there are other complications, as was mentioned this morning. They don't mark assets to market. Um, Their assets have deteriorated in value. uh, And they're paying higher and higher interest on reserves, so their earnings are collapsing. And they were, at one time, paying 40% of the cost of servicing the national debt. Seems to me by the end of next year, that could very well be gone. And that adds to the next problem I wanted to just talk about, and that's the fiscal headwinds. The major fiscal headwind we face is the debt has been doubled, the cost has been hidden, interest rates are going to rise in the recovery. Uh, investment is approaching its historic post-war norm of 17.5 percent of GDP. That's demand for capital. That's going to drive up interest rates. As interest rates return to their historic norm, we're at the historic norm last quarter in economic growth in the post-war period. We're not going to get historic growth and not get historic interest rates. So what? What? All, what is the historic interest rate? Well, nobody knows. But uh, let me just pick two numbers, which I picked in the paper. One, if you look at the whole post-war period from 48 to 2009, and you say, well, 77 through 82 were double digit inflation, the interest rates were extraordinary, let's just drop that period. And then let's call the average of the rest the norm. That would be 4.8% as a cost of borrowing for the treasury. Another way of doing it would be to assume the Fed actually achieved its 2% inflation target. And if you look at from 48 to 2009 including every year and you take the nominal rate, you subtract the inflation rate then the real rate was 1.2%. So what I what we've done in the paper is we took those two interest rates and then we took the CBO model before Trump's program and we simply took their projections uh, and we projected them five years into the future uh, we only made one assumption, and that is the waiving of the spending caps of the 2011 budget deal, which had occurred in 2014, 15, 16, uh, and did occur in 17 and 18 would have occurred had Obama become president or had Clinton been elected. And then we took the 2018 CBO model, which had the, the deregulation effect at least part of it, and the tax cut. And we assumed that we would stay at the historic norm for five years in economic growth and approach the historic norm on interest rates in the fifth year. Well, what we found when we did that was that whereas in America in the post-war period, the average preemption of credit by the treasury was 1.6% of GDP. In the Reagan years, it was 1.8% of GDP. Under our model, in looking five years from now, we found that depending on the interest rate you used that the Treasury was going to be preempting as much as 5.2% of GDP and as little as 3.7% of GDP. It's interesting that even with the Obama policy and the Obama growth and the Obama interest rates, they would have barred 4.8% of GDP because of the... the, uh, simply the level of spending built into the budget. Now, we've got other factors here that are built into these models, not just the tax cut, but the the entitlement programs of the 30s and 60s that were triggered to explode as the population aged, and it has aged. But in any case, this brings us down to what what is this analysis say about what we should do now. And I'd like to conclude on that point. Um, We're going to be paying an interest at 4.8% five years from now. $1 trillion, $141 billion is the estimate using the CBO model. That's more than we will spend on Medicare. That's how serious this debt service problem is. Now, so we're going to have a serious challenge in keeping the recovery going because of competition between the public and private sector for available capital. And we're going to have a Fed that even if it wanted to, could not prevent this competition from occurring. So what does this say? It says five minutes, yes, (laughs) got it. What this says is, that there are five things we ought to do. One, we ought to recognize the Fed is incapable of suppressing interest rates, and they're not going to solve our problem. Number two, that high growth is critical because it means more revenues, lower deficits, less borrowing. And so anything we can do to stimulate growth, we need to do. What the administration controls is regulations. We've not implemented 81% of the Treasury's regulations on uh, Dodd-Frank potential. There are a lot of things we can do. We need to do them. Um, Number three, for the sake of keeping growth going and keeping interest rates down, we need to solve our trade problems. The tax cut, the growth, the higher interest rate will attract capital. Our capital surplus will rise. The trade deficit will rise. And I know that because of double-entry bookkeeping and double-entry bookkeeping yields to no man. This is going to happen. It is an absolute certainty. And anything we do to try to stop it is going to impede growth and drive up interest rates. We need foreign capital. Now, it's going to play hell with the third world financial market when we get it, but we need it to keep our recovery going. Number four, if you don't spend money, you don't have to borrow it. The administration and the new Congress needs to set out a policy. If the Democrats want to spend money or the Republicans, they got to cut spending somewhere to pay for it. It'll make Republicans a party of fiscal responsibility again, and it will shut down a lot of bad ideas. Last point. Last point. Three minutes, so I'm going to beat that. We need to enhance the incentive for people to work. Uh, we need um uh, the president, in one executive order, can knock out all of the waivers that Obama put in place under the welfare program. Still, almost half the states have waivers. The District of Columbia. That could be ended. Um, We're not going to be able to reform entitlements. We're not going to be able to reform other welfare programs. We need the quickest and best source of labor is all of the old people that are quitting work. And uh, there are a lot of things we can do to enhance their willingness to work. Uh, We can um, exempt them from Social Security and Medicare taxes at least by the time they're 70, we can exempt them from wage and hour laws. We can override state laws on mandatory retirement age and professions where there's no safety problem. These are the kind of things we need to do to keep the recovery going. Now, let me stop and throw it open for questions. And let me say to begin with, I committed about six months ago to do a testimony at the Federal Trade Commission on all these groups that are trying to blackmail corporations into doing stupid things. And I had no idea they were going to set that this afternoon. So I'm going to run out of here, but it's not because I'm afraid of questions. But I've got almost 20 minutes, so I'd be very happy to answer any question. I can Jeb wants
0: to help me, that's fine. Any hands? Way, way, way in the back. And while he's getting there, we'll take this gentleman here in the front. Nathan, would you go over to this gentleman first? That way we can fit in more questions. And then we'll get to you in the back second.
1: Go Uh, ahead. uh, Dennis Campbell, Independent Investment Advisor. Uh, Well, either one of you, uh, uh, should we not uh, return to uh, the Fed's original mission of price stability and bank regulation and jettison? the uh, full employment or creating maximum employment mandate, and all these other macroeconomic uh, 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 mandates that stem from that.
2: Well, I, look, I, to me, price stability is more important, is the, most, is the most important Fed goal. But you need to realize now with divided government, we're not going to be able to legislate in any of these areas, at least for the next two years. Um, Whether full employment is a stated objective, it is so important to the country that it's always going to be a concern of the Fed, whether you set it out or not, in my opinion.
1: Well, the way to get full employment is to have economic growth, and the way to get economic growth is to assure long-term price stability. I, I will say this for those who have a concern about the dual mandate. We know in reality it's a, it's, a, it's a tripart mandate. But Republicans and conservatives have spent a lot of time ensuring that federal agencies in their rulemaking adhere to cost-benefit analysis, which includes the impact of regulation and policy upon economic growth. Uh, We would look a little silly if we attempted to take a plank out that could be interpreted as trying to remove economic growth as a mandate. I think the best way to get about, again, the dual mandate is to define full employment through long-term price stability. But having said that, in the short term, uh, the senator is completely right. You will have little or no legislation of consequence go through the next Congress. Uh, and that might be a good thing.
0: Gentleman in the back.
1: Yes, good afternoon, Pat Kurovsky. Uh, in 1988, with the Basel Accord, state's regulators basically stated that the risk weight for sovereign debt was 0%, while that of citizens
0: 100%. That was a year before the fall of the Berlin Wall. No one
1: noticed. Now we have painted ourselves in that corner of setting Zero percent risk weight for the sovereign. How do you get out of that quarter? How can you, for instance, announce tomorrow that the risk weight perhaps
2: should be point zero zero one percent? How do you get yourself out of that predicament? Would you state the question again? <laughs> He's asking
0: about well, risk weights,
1: but <laughs> well the question has to do with the Basel Accords and the risk weighting, particularly with respect to sovereign debt. Um You know, it recalls that famous phrase from Hayek about fatal conceit and the idea that somehow a group of uh, predominantly European, not that there's anything wrong with Europe, but European financial regulators are somehow going to be able to pinpoint the systemic risk within, um, uh, you know, within the, the global macro economy. I mean, let's face it, historically, they put almost zero risk rating on sovereign debt, almost zero risk weighting on mortgage-backed securities. Think Fannie, Freddie, Greek bonds. We know how the story ended. Uh, I think it is inherently risky to have a centralized global authority to come up with one definition of risk. Uh, I mean, the real answer here is to have an incredibly strong balance sheet, And if you look at the historic norms prior to the advent uh, of the Fed, um, and I know that John Allison and I have had many conversations about this, you would find uh, leverage ratios, simple leverage ratios, more in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 percent. And so um, somebody mentioned the Financial Choice Act earlier. That was the whole idea of the Financial Choice Act. If you're going to avail yourself of the Fed's discount window, if you're going to avail yourself of of the federal backstop of deposit insurance, you know, let's roll back the regulations. Have a strong balance sheet. Let bankers be bankers. And so, again, I just think it's inherently risky to have everybody crowd into the same asset classes because Basel decided they weren't risky when we know that is false.
0: Gentlemen, here.
2: Well, the- first of all, we. The Fed can set <clears throat> whatever policy it wants. It's not, it's not governed by Basel. We participate in Basel. We ought to lead the effort to set standards on sovereign debt. Um, um, so uh, this is something we can fix, and we should fix. Sounds
0: good. The, the gentleman. Because you the affect the-
2: behavior when you, when you set capital standards and you give a weighting to an asset. You know, you got all these countries all over the world that are giving all this weighting to now infrastructure. So you're gonna invest money in this train in California and you're gonna call that equivalent to U.S. sovereign debt?
1: Don't, don't forget green bonds. Yeah, I don't think that that works.
0: Take the gentleman here. Good, good afternoon, honorable gentlemen. I have a two part question. The first part we heard all morning about mechanisms and policies of the Fed. But we didn't hear about the Glass-Steagall Act and the elimination of the Glass-Steagall Act, and I'm wondering if there's any need to look at that in light of what needs to be fixed. We have a really great policy analysis on the Glass-Steagall Act that you should look into. Good, thank you. Okay. (laughs) The second part, sorry, sorry. The second part is for Congressman. Uh, You mentioned the 1960s as 4% growth. And today, we're barely reaching that during the 2000s. Have times changed? Have demographics changed? Have policies changed? Has the world changed? Can we get back to the 4% growth that we talked about? Thank you. Thank
2: you. Well, let me say on Glass-Steagall, the answer is no. I've seen no evidence whatsoever to substantiate any claim that, the changes that we made in Graham, Leach, Blyley, and we did not repeal Glass-Steagall. We simply set up through holding companies where high-quality banks could, in separate affiliates, engage in the insurance business and security business. The problem in the subprime crisis was the holding of mortgage-backed securities, and that was allowed under Glass-Steagall. So I don't see that, and look, and the fact that I wrote that law, if, it were, if I thought you were right, I'd say so. I don't get any royalties on it. It's, you know, I don't know why people feel they got to defend what they thought in 1999. I, maybe I've learned something since then. The second question was a better question, but I forgot what it was.
1: Can we achieve 4% economic? Yes. again? Yes,
2: yes. We could achieve more with better policy.
1: So I would agree that the separation of investment banking and retail banking had absolutely nothing to do with the last financial crisis, nor do I think it'll have anything to do with the next financial crisis. I mean, we all know in many respects, it was simply um, a, a, a bad policies that incented, cajoled, mandated banks to loan money to people to buy homes they couldn't afford to keep. It was an erosion of traditional prudential underwriting standards, uh, principally for residential uh, real estate uh, that drove this. Uh, and so I, I see no evidence whatsoever that this will somehow lead to less systemic risk if we went back to Glass-Steagall. And I think, frankly, the world has kind of moved on, and, and yes, like the senator with the right public policy, sky, sky's the limit, sky's the limit. Uh, you know, what's the famous quote from the, from the head of the patent office back in the 80, 80s? Surely everything that could possibly be invented has been invented. Uh, absolutely not. We we still continue to scratch the surface on what's possible.
0: Uh, in the interest of time, I want to take two questions and those might be our last two. And they're right next to each other in that same row there, Anthony. Thank you.
3: Thank you for your talk. Uh, Matthew Taylor, no current affiliation. My question is on uh, the elephant in the room when it comes to setting policy seems to be inflation. No one wants it, and yet, honourable uh, former senator Graham, you—the path you showed to how we can get back on track to a prudent monetary policy involves a lot of things coming true, all of which are contingent and easily could not happen. Both uh, things that the Fed has to accomplish, as well as Mm -hmm. legislation that needs to be passed uh, by a united house and senate and president and everyone has to be in agreement and if you think about the chances of that coming to pass uh, and the risks of it not coming to pass a betting man would imagine they don't Mm -hmm. so
0: and question sorry
3: (laughs) (laughs) i know we're short on time (laughs) do you think inflation despite all the horrible things that are coming along with it, might be an acceptable way out over the short run. We've experienced it as a nation before, and we've come out of it.
0: Okay, so inflation is a way out, but let's go ahead and take a question from Jaime well, right next time at the same time. First
2: of all, there's a lot we can do with executive order um, and that could improve our situation, Providing more incentives for older people to work is an area where you might get bipartisan support. I don't hold any bonds, and the reason I don't hold any bonds is because of fear of inflation. Um, So I, I think inflation is a very, very real risk. There are a lot better ways out of this than inflation, and I hope we will find one well, I would agree to,
1: to a great extent from what the senator said early that the, the Fed can indeed manage to unwind this balance sheet and return to some normalcy of policy, but I also would, you know, hold that akin to the odds of drawing into an inside straight. So I, I hope they do draw to the inside straight, but the odds don't necessarily favor that. So I haven't quite gone as far as the senator has. I I do own some fixed income instruments. I I think I'm going to reassess now.
2: Uh, oh, we need to talk. Yeah,
1: apparently we need to talk after the conference uh, senator a, a, a little bit about that. Uh but uh, again, economic growth is is um is a huge part of the solution, but I must admit I'm very sobered by the fact that um you know, most nations that come to a, a, a debt crisis will end up monetizing their debt. And I don't care how many times central bankers tell you they won't do it. Historically, they have
2: done it. Well, and we had a lot of inflation in the post-war period. Great. Um,
0: um, so in the, are you, just, re, if it's a really short question, I want to make sure we get Senator Graham off to his next so uh, I'm Jaime Arbon, I'm an economist at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and also chairman of the National Economist Club. And very quick question. When you speak about debt crisis, uh, have you ever thought that maybe uh, the US crisis will not be a debt crisis like Europe, but a more profound crisis like Japan, where there's essentially a zombification of the economy, lackluster growth, that nothing seems to work? Uh, because like Japan, the US uh, holds its debt in the currency that it can't print or expand, create dollars. So, thank you.
2: Well, let me say that if you look at what is going on in the world, if you look at the debt level of Japan, and if you look at what the European Central Bank has done, and all the sovereign debt that it's bought up, especially from Southern European countries, and when you look at where we are, with a dollar and thirty-one cents of reserves for every dollar of demand deposits, if a person were prone toward fearing the future, you could find a lot of reason to be concerned. Um, having said that, uh, there are a lot of good things happening in the private sector. Uh, I think we're undercounting technologies and advancements in terms of GDP and prices. You know, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, America has, quote, not had a raise in 45 years. That doesn't pass the laugh test. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of good things going on that are very difficult to measure, My iPhone replaced postage stamps, the post office, uh, a a deal to tell me where to drive somewhere. It's helped me look at the stars. Uh, I can follow Texas A&M football. (laughs) And they put it in a consumer price index without displacing anything else without noting the dramatic change in value, and now they track its cost. When this one is twice as good as the one I had before it, which was twice as good as the Blackberry I had before that. We don't even know how to measure technology now. So a lot of things to be afraid of, but there are a lot of very powerful, positive economic forces out there. So I haven't decided to give up. But again, I think you've got to realize that there's a hell of a debt problem in this world. And it's nobody's ever run these kind of debts and not had things that the costs come home.
0: On that precautionary yet optimistic note, let us thank both of our panelists, please. Thank you.